Welcome back to the program. It's easy to forget sometimes that everything starts somewhere, even bad things. Many of the tremors we face today, repeated incidents of genocide, the rise of Muslim extremism in the Middle East, the battle for post-World War I borders in the Middle East, the plight of refugees, the competition between national and corporate interests, the Israeli-Palestinian conundrum, and even acts of heroism in the face of seemingly improbable odds. All of these things had their roots in the Ottoman Empire and the run-up to the First World War, and 100 years ago in the first genocide of the 20th century, what came to be called the Armenian Genocide. What we've forgotten is that for those that perpetrated it, there was a price to pay as a small band of brothers set out to avenge the death of millions of people killed in that genocide. It is now a story told by my guest, Eric Bogosian. Eric, as most of you know, is an actor, playwright, and novelist. He was a Pulitzer Prize finalist for his play Talk Radio and is the recipient of numerous awards and the author of several novels. It is my pleasure to welcome Eric Bogosian back to this program to talk about his new work of nonfiction, Operation Nemesis, the assassination plot that avenged the Armenian Genocide. Eric, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Jeff. Great to have you here. Thanks to have me on. Yeah. It's yeah. Always, always great it's to have you. How good to did, be on again. Talk about how you got to know this story originally. Honestly, I didn't. I thought I knew something about the Armenian Genocide because my grandparents had evaded it and escaped it, uh, like you said, about 100 years ago. And I knew the stories that get told in Armenian households, but I didn't really know the details. And over the years, I became more and more curious, uh, especially when I did the movie with Adam Lagoyan. At the same time, I had been frequently asked by members of the Armenian community uh, why I haven't written something about the Armenian genocide or the Armenian experience in the United States, as Saroyan had done, your uh, fellow Californian. And I, uh, I, it, it really wasn't in my wheelhouse, but as I became more and more um, interested in the stories, I did started doing some investigation. And I came upon this story, which many Armenians know about, of the assassination of Talat Pasha. And Talat was the leader of the Ottoman Empire. He was actually one of the leaders, but he was really the key guy uh, during World War One, and he was very much responsible for what happened to the Armenians. And he was assassinated in Berlin in 1921 by a young man named Solomon Tetlirian. And Sogoman purportedly was a, a survivor of the genocide who had ended up in Berlin as an engineering student five years later, ran into Talat, saw Talat on the street in Berlin and felt that he was compelled to shoot him. He shot him. He died. There was a huge court case. When I found out that, and he was acquitted, he was acquitted because the Berlin court felt that he had been, I mean, basically in brief, that he had been traumatized by his experience of seeing his whole family massacred before his eyes and, and barely surviving with his own life. So he was given a pass. He was acquitted. And he actually ended up dying, uh, living to be an old man in California. Uh, he died in the 60s. Um, this was the story that I heard. And to me, it seemed like it would make a great 
it would it would work as a film, and that's something I have some experience about is writing screenplays. Mm-hmm. And so I set about writing this movie, and no sooner did I begin the research than I discovered that, in fact, what Tetlerian said in court was pretty much a fabrication. He wasn't an engineering student. He hadn't barely survived the genocide. In fact, he was a men- member of a very wide-ranging assassination squad that operated all over Europe, that, which called itself Operation Nemesis. And it operated out of, of all places, Massachusetts, and it sent hitmen all over Europe, and they succeeded in killing six major Turkish uh, leaders in those two years, 1921 and 1922. This story was suppressed for a long time, and even now it's, it, it was, it's kind of hard to get out. But the thing is, is I couldn't write the movie because I discovered that there was so much more there, and I decided to write this book, and that the book would also be a, a kind of a primer on the context in which these assassinations took place, which is to say the Armenian Genocide is even larger than that, which you, you began by saying, and which is really important for people to know, that the Ottoman Empire was this enormous empire that covered the Middle East and even into Europe, and as it fell apart, uh, which it fell apart a hundred years ago, uh, that reverberations we're still feeling today in the Middle East, in what's happening right now, this minute in northern Iraq and in Turkey, and also all the things that happened in, um, you know, Sarajevo and Bosnia and all of that. That was also part of this back in the 90s. So uh, at any rate, these were all things I didn't know anything about. I had to do all this research. I did it. I tried to make it as readable a book as possible. And uh, in the core, in the center of the story, is this amazing story where this group of small businessmen in the New England, New York area pulled together these uh, these uh, former military guys and they sent them off, uh, they funded them and sent them into Europe and they knocked off all these Turkish leaders and this story has just not been told and I felt that there had to be a book uh, that you could just easily get in the United States and I think I've I think I've succeeded in getting at least getting the story out. Certainly, if, if to no one else, to the Armenian uh, population in this country, we're a very close knit community, and I think many people know about Solomon Tetlerian, but they didn't know. And I think it's important to know this if you're going to talk about the Armenian genocide. You should, you know, you should point out that at the end of it, uh, the core group of leaders were almost all killed. Uh, within a couple of years after the genocide. And that's, I think that's significant for for anybody interested in history. It's an amazing story. And this group of of assassins was not your your ordinary group of, you know, ex-military guys that got together, as you said. It was a group of businessmen. It was a very unexpected group that set out on this revenge plot. Yeah, they had they had a political affiliation that traced back to the. Of course, we're talking about immigrants. These guys are all of my grandparents' generation, and the really big flood of 
immigrants, not only Armenians, but Greeks, Italians, many people were coming in in the late 1890s, in the 1890s and into the early 20th century, just before World War I. And when these people came over, they brought with them their affiliations. Um, and you could, they are political, but they're also, they're cultural as well. In this case, it was a group called the Armenian Revolutionary Federation. And in fact, it exists to this day. Um, within this group and within the leaders of the group and certain factions within the group, it was felt that there had to be a response to this this massive bloodletting in Turkey. I mean, it was just, it was, you know, I knew about it before I started reading about it. And when I, when I started doing the studying of it, it just takes your breath away. It's the same as studying the Holocaust. You really can't understand how this could have happened and how people can do this to other people. But at any rate, it was a, it was an overwhelming destruction of the civilian population. You know, I mean, I get it. If you say, uh, political uh, actors uh, get caught and killed or soldiers get caught and killed, but we're not talking about that. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of women, children, old people, uh, innocent people who were killed. And uh, the Armenians of this community felt that this had to be answered. Um, some people didn't feel that. Some people felt that the important thing was to move on. Uh, get your lives together, get successful, have children, replace the people who had died, um, collect the orphans. There were hundreds of thousands of orphans. Uh, save those people, save the women who had been abducted into Muslim households in the Middle East. But this particular group felt that, it, and, I, and I agree that it, it was almost existential. Something, it had to be shown that the Armenians had could stand up and say we exist and we're not going to stand for this and uh, and that's what they did so these guys although they were um you know it was a, a life insurance salesman and a cpa and an editor and these guys they did have affiliations to these political roots that went all the way back to the old country who was in charge how did this group come together and, and, and where did orders come from where did instructions come from the, the, the top man, the executive, was a man named Armin Garo. And Armin Garo uh, was the oldest of the group. He was sort of an elder statesman of the Armenian community with revolutionary roots. Back when the Armenians were, when there were revolutionaries in the Ottoman Empire, he had been part, when he was a very young man, of a takeover of a bank, the Bank Ottoman, in, 19, in uh, 1896 in Istanbul. Constantinople, it was known at the time. And, and um, this was a violent takeover with hostages and so forth, trying to get attention to the uh, predations on the Armenians. Uh, and there were all kinds of massacres going on at that time as well, and they wanted to bring the world's attention to it. It's a classic uh, act of this type. Uh, as uh, he as he uh, moved on and as things changed in Turkey, there was even a brief period when there was a parliament in Turkey and he was a parliamentarian. But when the war broke out and when they saw that there was going to be this kind of incredible tension in the East between the Turks and the Russians and the Armenians, uh, Garo uh, went on the side of the Russians and um, in World War One, And later, 
he was he was a you know he was an elder statesman and he he argued the case. Uh, this was all done very secretly that there needed to be this retribution. Garo brought on on board uh, a man named Shahan Natali, who was pretty much the operations guy. And Shahan was actually in Europe uh, covering, uh, keeping track of who the various uh, guys were on the streets who were actually armed. And then there were other people. There were people who handled the money, collecting money. There were people who handled communications and strategy. And there were numerous spies operating in Europe who in one way or another were affiliated, had some kind of connection to diplomatic um, information so they could keep track or, or try to track where these Turkish, these exiled Turkish uh, leaders were. Because it's important to remember these men who had been assassinated were all on the run from uh, the, from uh, for military war crimes. And there had been trials in in Istanbul in 1919 and they had all taken off. So they weren't in, they weren't in Turkey anymore. They were all over Europe and, and they were in hiding and they had already been convicted of war crimes and in absentia con- condemned to death in the case of Talat Pasha. So in many ways, these um, Armenians, they felt that they were basically meeting out the execution that had already been determined in court in 1919 under the British occupation. Uh, it's complicated. I mean, even as I tell the story now, it's, you know, it's hard to get all the pieces together. And that's, that was a, a big task for me in putting the book together, but I tried to, you know, lay it out so that somebody could enter this, this topic and get it because when you get right down to it, when you get to the core of it, it is kind of amazing. Um, like I say that the, a CPA or a, or a, or an editor can uh, coordinate this sort of thing. The, certainly the, the assassination of Tetlerian got a, a lot of press, a lot of coverage when it happened. As you say, there was the trial and, and all that followed. The other assassinations, to what extent were they known or to what extent did they happen almost quietly? Uh, it took a while. I think the Turks, uh, and in terms of the fact that there was a there was a network of Turks operating all over Europe and in contact with, it, I think they understood right away what was going on. Um, the The Germans, where the where the court case actually took place in 1921, where the the, the trial went on, uh, they it was in their interest to keep off the premise that that Tetlerian was a lone gunman. Because under that, with, with, with keeping that in the forefront, they could then sort of wriggle out of their own responsibility for the Armenian genocide. Because don't forget, the Germans and the Turks were um, allies in World War One, and the Germans had brought uh, a lot of their really intense artillery down into the Ottoman Empire to help the Turks and destroy anybody that they felt was in their way, which was in many cases, the Armenians there, there were in, I mean, it would be like, let's say there's an Armenian neighborhood in some small town and the Turks would say, we want to get rid of this neighborhood and the, and the Germans would basically shell it until it was gone. Again, very similar to what's going on over there in the Middle East today. Um, but the Germans, when the war came to an end and they were, they were negotiating the peace treaties, they didn't, they wanted to wash their hands of this whole Armenian business. And so this trial was an opportunity for them to throw it all onto the Turks. 
And to do that, they wanted to keep it on this idea that Sogomon Ketlerian was just this unaffiliated guy who just happened to see Talat and shoot him. Uh, oddly, it seems that other people went along with this. The New York Times reporting on the case, uh, when they first reported on it, they mentioned that he might be uh, part of some network of uh, a political group. But when they finally talked about the trial, they didn't mention it again. And um, so overall, people just didn't know that there was this network of assassins. The Turks probably got it. Uh, when Saeed Halim Pasha was assassinated in Rome, he, it just was reported that he was killed and they didn't catch the killer. This, there was another trial for one of the other killers and the same sort of thing happened. He was also acquitted based on some kind of mental problems. By that point, they hadn't really put it together that that was in Constantinople. They hadn't put it together that these two guys were connected, the one in Berlin and the one in Constantinople. In two years after six assassinations, the gig was up, and the leaders, the guys above even Armin Garo, the Armenians at the highest levels, basically put pressure on the group to disband and cease their activities because they could see that if this kept up, it could be a real black eye for the through any attempts at Armenians establishing diplomatic relations with other countries and so forth. I mean, you're just not supposed to go and kill um, leaders of other countries. It's just not the, very much like what happened with Eichmann um, being abducted from Argentina and taking to Israel, whether he was a war criminal or not, Israel was not supposed to go into Argentina and grab him. Uh, so this is all... I mean, this all becomes very interesting in terms of the, what countries think they're allowed to do and not allowed to do. Um, and in the long run, Turkey became a strategic ally of the West, very much due to the, its proximity to the oil fields in the Middle East. And um, slowly over time, this whole thing got sort of turned around and forgotten and basically all pushed under the rug. It's, it's interesting, too, that this group of guys, after they had completed these these six, essentially, assassinations, kind of disbanded, just disappeared, almost never to be heard from again. Oh, they had to, in the beginning, when, when, when Tetlerion was in tri on trial in June of 1921, it was essential to keep everything super secret because they knew that they were going to continue to attack and they wanted to be sure that none of their operatives were jeopardized by uh, being uncovered. So they didn't want to keep the secret up. Of course, once they get past this period, when they get into the later 1920s um, and into the 30s, it's still what they had done was completely illegal. And um, if somebody could pull the threads together, there could still be um, cases brought against these men. So there became a uh, culture of super secrecy. And in some cases, like in the case of uh, uh, the bursar, um, Aaron Sachaklian, he basically took everything, put it in a box, closed it up, put it in the basement, and never told anybody in his family what he had done. And that has only recently been uncovered by his granddaughter, um, Marion uh, McCurdy, who is, uh, she put out her own book this year called Sacred Justice. And uh, in that book, she talks about her grandfather, who was a, uh, who was a CPA uh, in, in Albany, 
uh, his participation in the in the organization. But they, they there was this culture of secrecy. Eventually, by the 1960s, uh, some people felt that it should be known, and they began to tell stories of what had happened, but in the most lyrical and often mythical ways. And so, part of my job was to kind of try to figure out how much of this stuff that was being said was true, how much of it had been sort of elaborated on. And and there are memoirs and things you can go through. And I had to go into, I mean, in some cases, I would look at newspaper accounts, like in Rome, and read what it, what the reporters at the time would say had happened in the assassination, and then what the assassin himself had said in his memoirs, and try and compare it and say, Who's telling the truth here? That was part of the real excitement of writing this book was to keep pulling at threads. You know, you can take your computer today and you can go into the British archives right from your home. And this was something I, I had never done this kind of research before. If you know what you're looking for, if you know you're looking for a letter on a particular date and you can go into an archive, whether it's in, I mean, I don't read Italian, but I do read English. So uh, I could go into the British archives and there were British intelligence agents involved in this whole plot. And I could look and say, I know this guy is talking to this guy. So if I find all the letters between these two guys and read them, and these are things that no one's really been interested in uh, since then. So I would find these uh, tantalizing clues uh, regarding uh, whether the British intelligence agents were aiding and abetting these Armenians as they hunted the Turks. Um, it's, uh, it, was a, it was a really exciting uh, journey for me to learn all this stuff and go and dig up these little odd clues. Um, the, the, the book is, it's all there in the book. Um, I'm hoping someday, somebody, there'll be a scholar who'll come along and really you know, make it his or her life's work to put all these little bits and pieces together because it's still, it is an incredible story. These men by assassinating all these former leaders basically changed history. And, uh, really when, when the smoke cleared, there was only one man standing who was a leader in Turkey. And that man was Mustafa Kemal, who was a sort of a junior to the men who had been killed. Later, Kemal would be known as Ataturk. And he was the man who, is credited with founding the Republic of Turkey in 1923 and uh, was, to this day, still venerated as the most important leader they've ever had in Turkey, if you don't count the sultans from hundreds of years ago. And um, Ataturk really was a really important man in world history, and it's I don't know that he would have been able to take power if these other men had still been alive um, at the end of that um, that period. Eric Bogosian, the book is Operation Nemesis, the assassination plot that avenged the Armenian genocide. Eric, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Jeff, thank you so much for having me on. My thank pleasure. You. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.